Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Recently, I was um, just over chatting with uh, my neighbour next door when uh, we noticed that one of his cows was about to give birth. So we went over to, uh, to watch this and to see if there was any uh, help needed. Uh, one of uh, my neighbour's uh, daughters was there. She was uh, she's studying at uh, uni um, in the area of uh, medical science, but she didn't want to stay around and, and watch the, the birth. She started watching it but then stopped. But the, the birth of um, the calf took place. It was all over in a minute or so. And it reminded me, though, of some amazing biochemistry that occurs just at birth. And just recently, I uh, read a very interesting article by a um, Eliana Callantine, um, who is a, uh, a physician um, and has um, specialised in uh, obstetrics. And uh, I, I found this article on the changes that take place when a baby is born as absolutely amazing design features. Now, the evidence for design in nature is just overwhelming. You know, evolutionists claim that all the different structures that we have um, you know, formed solely by chance. There were mutations and, the, you know, the, the scenario is the fishes um, that happened to develop and have a mutation with stronger fins was able to uh, drag itself from one pond to the next when the drought came and hence survived and it bred other fishes with these stronger muscles and, and so forth. And really when you think about it, the change from a muscle to a, a leg system is a huge, huge amount of code, all these different joints and muscles and bones and nerves and ten, you know, tendons and so forth. Blood vessels have to be created. And, you know, I mean, to me it seems so obvious that it just can't arise by chance. But when we look at birth, what happens is we have a, a system set up, and there are a number of systems set up, in the little baby that are temporary. So these are design systems that are set up that they're there temporary and the mechanisms are there to change over to a different system as soon as, as uh, a baby is, uh, is born. So when the, the baby is in its mother, it gets its life support from the, uh, the placenta which surrounds the, the baby part of the womb and um, the baby has its own uh, kidney and, and lungs and uh, a digestive system and uh, an immune system. Um, in fact, um, some, sometimes um, uh, a baby in actual fact can, just before it's born, can do its first poo. Now that is not very good when that happens and um, would need that the baby's airways would need to be clean. But it just shows you that all those mechanisms are there. Now, the lungs, of course, are, well, the little mini air sacs in there are, are, are compressed. And so they're there, they're in 
there in, um, uh, you know, it compressed in its lung. And the baby is, of course, in its fluid, and so it's underwater. Um, and in, in a sense, it is breathing, but it's breathing through the, the blood supply that it is receiving, not through its lungs so much at that time, or not through its lungs at that time. And so it's this placenta that's providing the nutrients and the oxygen for the growing baby, and it also takes away the waste products. Now, the little placenta, of course, also forms a, a barrier um, against a lot of uh, harmful products, um, and it protects um, the, the baby from exposure to a lot of uh, chemicals and so forth So that might be in the mother's blood while allowing oxygen and carbon dioxide to cross. And it's um, uh, as the little baby uh, grows, um, and of course the baby can attach to different parts of the placenta, and so, um, and that allows for um, when the baby is, is growing, it can be in different positions initially, and, and so different pregnancies can, can feel quite different. But uh, as the uh, blood, leaves the uh, placenta and it, it's carried by the umbilical cord. Um, it goes mainly into the ba baby's liver and then a small amount of uh, blood is sent to nourish the liver but the majority of the blood uh, passes through a vessel uh, abbreviated DV and this is one of a main temporary bypass shunt that God has designed. And so this blood of the uh, ductus venesus, or DV, uh, flows into a large vein called the IVC, or inferior vena cava. And this is the vessel that brings the deoxygenated blood from the lower extremities to the heart. And the vein um, enters the right of one of the heart's two upper chambers, uh, the, the right atrium, or... RA, and uh, there's another large vein uh, that uh, enters um, the uh, RA as well, carrying the blood from the head and upper extremities. Now, some of the baby's blood is also shunted from the right atrium across to the other side, the left atrium, by way of a temporary opening called the foramen ovale, and or abbreviated FO, and this is what is commonly called the hole in the wall dividing the upper chambers of the heart, and so we refer about this, uh, refer to this as the uh, the hole in the heart, and this is where, again, this is another temporary blood shunt that God has sent up, while now the baby's body to develop and all the organs to function, and until it actually begins to uh, breathe and change to its regular system, and so. What happens is that as the baby is born, um, the uh, changes take place and pressure in the uh, left side increases uh, while the pressure on the right side decreases of the heart. And this changes in pressure between the two atria causes the flaps of muscle around that hole in the heart that served as a shunt between them to fold in so it functionally closes. 
And so this all happens just as the, as the baby is born and um, the obstetrician clamps the umbilical cord and changes that circulation. At the same time then air enters the, the lungs and it expands the uh, sacs. So a little baby's mouth comes into air, opens, air comes into the lungs because they've been compressed. And so now they, as they expand from that compression coming out through birth, they expand, that draws air in and breathing begins. And this all causes the blood flow to the lungs to increase. As I said, that change in blood flow in the lungs then changes the pressure difference across the, the heart, which closes that flap shunt. And uh, the shunts of uh, fetal circulation, the uh, DV and the DA and the FO, all begin to shut down functionally with that first breath. As very quickly, fibrous tissue grows in the first months and the whole, you know, whole there uh, seals over. Now these are just one of the, the amazing system of little biochemistry and also physical changes that take place um, during birth that are just switched on just at that precise time. Now, when you think about it, to have these temporary structures, they are so characteristic of a design feature. These temporary blood vessels, these temporary uh, openings and passages and so forth that are there. Also, the fact that um, there are the villa in the lung are, are compressed so that the baby doesn't try to breathe while it's uh, underwater, in effect, in uh, fluid. And yet the moment it comes out through to that squeezing and pressure, coming out as it expands, coming out, it draws the air in, begins the, the process. When we think about that process of birth, it is just so reeks of design features. The switchover, when the umbilical cord is cut, the switchover from the mother's biochemistry to the baby's biochemistry. And, of course, mothers and babies can have different blood types and, you know, there's so much difference that, that uh, takes place at that particular time. The, you know, the evidence for design, we, you know, just maybe another, another interesting one I was reading, you know, reasonably recently was about um, the octopus. And I've talked about the octopus before, uh, particularly its ability to regenerate... Um, uh, lost sort of limbs, such as the uh, its um, tentacles, uh, if they're cut off or bitten off, they can they grow back exactly. They grow back to exactly the same length. They grow back the same. And this understanding the the cascade of biochemistry uh, behind this is you know has huge potential in in medicine, but. Um, one of the uh, you know fascinating uh, things about octopuses is that they, you know, again seem to be you know very um, in, intelligent. Um, you know, just reading one of the um, stories of uh, Inky, an octopus uh, that achieved international notoriety in 2016 when he escaped from the New Zealand's National Aquarium. Uh, tracks found the next morning. Just reading a little report on this found that uh, showed Inky had forced himself through a small gap at the top of his enclosure and then travelled across the floor to a drain pipe 
and onto the sea. So that's uh, pretty pretty cool, eh? <laughs> and uh, another article on this uh, says other institutions that have kept octopuses tell of similar great escapes and also of their overnight raids to catch and eat fish in other tanks. It goes on, one active octopus learned to turn off electric lights by using its siphoned yet to squirt water at them, short-circuiting the power supply. Another took an apparent dislike to a certain attendant squirting a stream of salty water at her whenever she came within range. And even after the attendant was absent for months, the octopus, not having squirted at anyone else meanwhile, evidently recognised her and immediately resumed the squirting attacks. So there's some interesting um, sort of features uh, there. Apparently they're, they're quite um, hard to uh, do research on. Um, researchers trying to test three octopuses with the classic pull lever for food type experiment, you know, that they do with rats that you read about. Uh, were stymied when one of them tried to pull the light into the tank and squirted water at everyone who approached and prematurely ended the experiment by breaking the levers. So some quite funny uh, scientific stories there. Of course, one of the fascinating aspects of octopuses is the ability of them to match the background of their environment, like a coral reef, by... Uh, changing colour so perfectly that it's very difficult to see them. And their um, uh, one you know, researcher described their skin as being like a pixelated video screen. Um, so the top layer contains uh, thousands, the you know, top layer of skin on the octopus contains thousands of tiny pockets of different colours that can be independently opened and closed so as to exhibit the colour scheme of the moment. And then underlying that particular surface of cells uh, to display the colour is a layer of reflective cells stacked like a diffraction grating to create iridescence. Um, and so that's what gives them that sort of, you can see at times a bright glow. And yet there's another layer beneath that that bounces back incoming light. So one of the things that I find fascinating is that how can the octopus know how to change the colour of those cells to match its environment? And how does it control that it's in its brain? And, uh, of course, they can uh, change their, their shape. Um, some uh, octopuses can you know, change their shape so they look like a banded sea snake or a lionfish. Um, and also as they're swimming along, and there might be sort of like the shadows of clouds on the sandy bottom, they can actually mimic those shadows. The shadows are moving, they're moving, and yet their shadow on the, that the octopus is making with its little um, skin colour cells matches the darkness of the shadow of the cloud. So I, I find this is uh, quite, um, uh, quite, quite fascinating. But just when you look at the, uh, the structure of those cells, 
and those different layers, you know, we think of the skin, yes, you can draw a picture of octopus's skin. And, you know, I, I actually caught an octopus once. I remember uh, fishing in Lake Macquarie as a teenager and, and uh, I was pulling in my line and I thought, oh, I've snagged a big clump of seaweed. And as I pulled it up, it was uh, quite a large octopus. I guess the body of it was um, about the size of a, uh, a soccer ball ball and its uh, tentacles would have been, um, you know, two-thirds of a metre long each. Um, and what happened, of course, was it grabbed the side of the boat. <laughs> didn't want to come any further. And so I just had to cut my line, which was probably a good thing. We didn't really want to pull it into the boat. We didn't know what to do with it. But, you know, when we think about the design of just those cells, we've got to remember that there's a, a code the DNA code has to arise by chance to not only build the proteins that build the structure of those cells, but also to build and encode for the enzymes that produce the particular chemicals that produce the particular pigments. And then it has to encode for those layers of cells that are structured like a... Um, a diffraction grating, and, and for listeners who don't know what diffraction grating is, the diffraction grating in, in physics and science is where you have very, very close lines or grooves together um, on a on a, a little um, lens, and as a result, the light is bends as it goes past those little grooves. It, it bends, and we call that diffraction. And so um, it can be used to separate um, the different colours or different wavelengths of light. And so, again, to, again, formulate the cells to build those little structures requires, again, intense design and programming. Those cells have to be in the right place to be able to diffract the light, to diffract those colours. And remember, they have to have the reflective cells behind them. There's even just in that cell structure in the octopus, there's so much um, design there. The other thing, of course, uh, other thing, of course, is the, the suckers. And that was uh, the suckers, the octopus are very, very strong. I mean, I experienced that when that octopus grabbed the side of the, the boat. And one of the amazing things is that they've looked at um, octopus suckers and they've attracted uh, quite a bit of um, attention uh, by scientists that study, you know, uh, biomimetics uh, because their suckers can suck more strongly than any normal man-made suckers can. And scientists looked at this and found that they had special radial grooves in the sucker areas, and um, that increased the area subject to pressure reduction during attachment. And um, so they began designing suckers with these groove patterns based on the octopus groove pack patterns. And um, so here again, we have evidence of amazing design, yet... If you believe the theory of evolution, if God believed that this arose by chance mutations, you know, over time. But really the whole coordinated system is 
to make those grooves at that time, you've got to change the code. And the code doesn't know what the environment is. You've got to have a mutation, a random chemical-type mutation that doesn't understand the need to have a stronger sucker. Change the code. This is why the whole theory of evolution doesn't work and it really um, oh, arouses my ire, I suppose, when I uh, read it. So I mentioned in one of the previous episodes where we have these scientists uh, like um, Sir David Attenborough and uh, Richard Dawkins and, and others calling out saying, oh, we want to make sure there's no creationism taught in schools. You know, it mustn't be taught a, a science. But evolution fails in, in so many different areas. Matter of fact, it, it's quite uh, interesting here that there's a, you know, um, the octopus fossils go back to about 100 million years, something like that. But yet they're, um, the evolutionary chain, you know, background, the evolutionary tree for an octopus just isn't there. The octopuses just appear in the fossil record. Um, they're fully formed, of course. And what are their ancestors? They're, um, matter of fact, um, in a, a 2018 paper that was published on the octopus, uh, 33 evolutionary scientists even seriously argued that octopus biology would have needed an input of genes from an, and this is, listen to this, an extraterrestrial source. <laughs> so this is it, they're, they're saying that there's, there's just no phylogenic tree when we look at its DNA and this sort of thing. Where did all these genes come from? And um, if, uh, if you're interested in that uh, uh, paper, by the way, uh, the author is E. Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, and 32 others. <laughs> and the title of the paper is Cause of Cambrian Explosion, Terrestrial or Cosmic? And uh, it was published in Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, volume 136, uh, pages 3 to 23 in 2018. So I'll just give you... Uh, that reference again, really interesting uh, paper, quite a large paper. Uh, the author, first author, is E. Steele, S T E E L E. Causes of Cambridge Explosion, Terrestrial or Cosmic, and it was in the uh, published in Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology, Volume One Three Six, pages three to twenty-three in two thousand and eighteen. Now, those scientists wrote that such things as a sophisticated nervous system, intelligent complexity in the eight uh, prehensile arms, camera-like eyes similar to ours, instantaneous camouflage via the ability to change colour and body shape. Um, there was just so much detail and complexity to the octopus. That's why they're saying, well, somehow genes must have come here from outer space. And this should give us an idea of how shallow the theory of evolution is. It can't really explain the, um, the origin of these um, animals. So if you, you know, the, the so-called evolutionary progression from primitive nautilus to cuttlefish to squid and octopus, uh, the needs 
massive changes in the genes and there's just no evolutionary change for that. But what does this point to? It points to intelligent design. It points to supernatural design. It points so clearly to a creator. We, the, you know, the octopus really is um, amazing evidence uh, uh, for creation. Interesting too how uh, octopuses use their limbs because they've got eight legs or arms, and um, one study found that while all the limbs basically have the same capabilities, uh, the octopus tends to favour particular limbs for certain functions. For example, when eating, the third limb is most often used. When swimming, all tentacles are generally employed. When crawling around, the front two tentacles are most active for exploratory work, and the limbs immediately behind them used... um, for further, and they also, uh, the two rearmost, provide most of the propulsion of movement, walking or pushing off the seabed. And so they uh, quipped <laughs> that essentially they said, well, you could think of an octopus having effectively six arms and two legs. <laughs> but um, that was um, some uh, research that was uh, reported on uh, uh, octopuses on. Uh, the abc.net.au Australia on the 14th of August, uh, some years ago. And uh, there was also an article um, uh, by uh, D. Thomas uh, called Octopuses Have Two Legs and Six Arms, uh, if you Google that. So it's quite interesting, of course, that we find fossils. Uh, when an octopus dies, if not gobbled up by scavengers, uh, you know, its soft body's going to decay pretty quickly into a slimy bowl. But um, it's been pointed out that, uh, well, some people have claimed, well, you know, it's very unlikely to find um, a, uh, a fossil octopus. But fossils have been found with uh, very um, a, a astonishing degree of preservation. They're displaying all their fossilised arms, muscles, suckers, internal gills, even ink. And uh, matter of fact, I've seen an article where an artist has drawn a picture of the octopus using ink from the fossil. So there was soft tissue preserved. And, of course, this is powerful evidence that must have been buried very rapidly, powerful evidence for the, the flood. There is just so much evidence for intelligent design, um, the birth of a baby the changes that take place at birth. It's just amazing evidence of intelligent design and uh, temporary systems that are set up that change at birth, the mechanisms to change them. There's just so much evidence that we are created. We're not a product of, of random mutations. And that creator is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible explains that. And he is our saviour. And there is a future for us too, a future of eternal life. Um, This uh, journey on our planet Earth is just a temporary one. You've been listening to Faith and Science. And remember, uh, you can re-listen to this program by Googling 3ABN Australia, or one word, .org.au. Click on the listen button and this program will come up. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.